Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. I played with Kevin Sheehan. Oh, I have to tell you about it. How many bets? There was just a few bets. It was within... Six keys to the front nine. Yeah, it was within <laughs> Driving game. one Long hole. Long iron play. Was within one Short hole. game. So often that he couldn't lines. press. I'll tell you what happened. So first of all, Kevin hits it. You got to win it on the greens. Kevin kills it off the tee. He kills it. He hits it 250 to 270. Big hitter. He killed big hitter Kevin. the llama. <laughs> big hitter. This is General George Washington, and you're listening to the Tony Kornheiser Show. Maybe not 270, but he hits it 250. I mean, he really hits it long. He just and he steps right up. He doesn't even, no practice swing, bang. But from that just story, which we didn't get to in that clip, not the most patient putter. No, right? He was angry, <laughs> and he you know was a five foot putter, and he didn't even hit the hole with it. So he lost money. All right, we have a wonderful show today. We have a lot of people in studio that we don't usually have. First of all, we have Luke Russert in studio. We're going to talk about Look For Me There, Luke's best-selling book, which I say with a lot of envy, never having had a bestseller myself. <laughs> I don't think I sold more than 10 copies of any book that I ever wrote, but I didn't even write them. I did, they were just reprints of stories and stuff like that. And Carol is in the studio. Carol's in the studio for a limited engagement. It's not going to be a disaster because she's not hosting the show. It's not. It's going to be fine. Do you, you need a microphone. I'll Carol. pass the microphone okay. to mom. So and the reason <laughs> Carol go, is in the studio <laughs> is because yesterday at Calvert Woodley, in front of the La Cheeserie counter, Dan Byrne gave a concert. About how long did he sing? Because Carol went. She left the house and all responsibilities to me. She said, I'm going to see Dan Byrne. How long? He sang for about 15 to 20 minutes. 15 or 20. Do you recall any of the songs he sang? A lot of cheese songs. A lot of cheese. <laughs> La Cheeserie. And uh, Victor Weminyama, which thrilled me to death. <laughs> Victor Weminyama, Victor Weminyama. It's okay. always a crowd favorite. What was the crowd like? Um, interesting. I had no idea what your fans look like <laughs> <laughs> that was really one of the second most <laughs> reason why i went um there were about 15 to 20 people there and uh they all looked normal and, and bobby godfrey was bobby there. bobby came in Love yeah bobby. second right i knew that he would be there he's inside the beltway bobby shows up to everything right bobby bobby did me a great favor i had to get the nerve up to ask dan when he was done if I, I wanted a picture of him, and I said, Bobby, please, here's my camera. Take a picture, please. And I told you before you went, I said, please introduce yourself to uh, Dan yes. Byrne. And you said, really? And I, I said, yes. I said, yes, because you don't let me out of the house usually. Right. <laughs> and I said, hi, um, I'm Carol Kornheiser, and my husband wanted me to say hi for you. <laughs> and, I, you know... I think that Michael Sands was there. He he laughed at that. <laughs> but it was... Uh, well, Michael Sands was definitely there. Yeah, yeah. 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 He stayed in the shadows. Uh, Carlos from La Cheeserie Counter uh, brought a big platter of cheese and crackers. So they gave away free Ooh. cheese. Refreshments. And crackers. Wow. Yes. Mm-hmm. From La Cheeserie. Yes. Which, yeah. again, for people that don't understand this, is about a six-foot-long counter in the middle of a giant liquor store. Uh-huh. It's not an emporium. It does not stand alone. People don't come from... Well, they do come from hundreds of miles away, but they, I don't, none of us understands why. It's I think a that cheese counter. Mostly locals uh, and, and Northern Virginia. Um, but it, it was a lot of fun, and people 
were there to see Dan and those like five people who were coming in to buy wine, liquor, whatever, just passed right in front of him. And you found out why he stopped there? He was on his way to the Outer Banks. <laughs> on vacation or, or on working? Um, he might have had a gig down there. I don't know. So we just stopped tour. Maybe the Who's playing down there, you know? <laughs> this is something to consider. Dan Byrne has opened for the Who. Yes, he has. And then he sings at a Let's cheese see. counter. <laughs> And yes. sings a song called Victor Wembanyama. <laughs> the only lyrics are Victor <laughs> Wembanyama. Those are the only lyrics. And once you hear it, it's in your head you forever. You cannot get it out of your head. There's yes. another song about Barry Bonds that he that might have been an oldie but good. Yeah, Barry Bonds was one of the original songs. Yeah. Yes. All right. So you had a good time. I had a great time. Okay, leap. I, I okay, don't bought your liquor. Yeah, you I, did. Well, don't make it sound like I was laying on the ground <laughs> waiting for the fix of the liquor. You bought some bottles of wine. Lost yeah. weekend. You know, yeah. It's I'm not Ray Milan. <laughs> you know, yeah. Okay. I'm out. Okay. Good Dear job. Carol, tonight we sweated out on the streets of runaway American dream. <laughs> Love. Tony. Yeah. I wrote that myself. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. You and Bruce. Calvin right. Woodley, forty years. Um so another thing happened to us in terms of food yesterday. Tom Claff and Bruce, Bruce Levinson, who are the people behind the Revolution Toaster. Luke, you know the Revolution Toaster, right? And that was a reference to, by the way, your wife getting love letters from a guy who wrote Springsteen lyrics. Do we recall that story? Yeah, it wasn't okay. Springsteen lyrics. It was Dylan lyrics. Oh, I'm so sorry. It was Dylan okay. lyrics. Yes. Still, I think about this story at least once a week. No, it, um, and just it was really a high school boyfriend she uh, who to attempted me. to pass off Bob Dylan yes. lyrics. Okay, I thought it was she's Bruce got Springsteen she lyrics. She's yes. an artist. She yes. don't look bad. Yeah. And, and I read this and I said, who's this loser? What are, you t- what are you doing here? Bob Dylan wrote that. Not your boy. I, I think about this story at least once a week. It's, it's good. So, it's incredible. I mean, to have the confidence to pass. I thought it was Bruce Springsteen. But to have the confidence to pass off Bob Dylan as lyrics. As your own. Yeah. As your own. I wrote this this morning. It's so impressive. Little yeah. thing. That's a classic high school movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm just knocking on heaven's door over here. Yeah. Yeah. So we had Tom Claff and Bruce Levinson, who are the people behind the Revolution Toaster, the great toaster in Brilliant the world, toaster. came over yesterday to make grilled cheese sandwiches on a panini press. Panini press. They brought their own bread and their own smokehouse cheddar. They brought Wonder Bread. For those of you old enough to remember Wonder Bread, they bought, brought Wonder Bread and they brought cheese, two different kinds of cheese. And can you describe what happened? Uh, well, I did not see the assembly of the sandwich, but I think everyone knows how to put together a grilled cheese. Right, uh, the but you panini, have to put it inside the, the panini press. The panini press. press looks almost like the claws that you'd use to break up like a, a pork butt if you've, been, if you've been smoking something on the grill. Uh, but no, you put the two pieces of bread in and you clamp it together and the panini press will slide into most traditional shaped toasters. So if you have a toaster oven... On the oven, right side. I don't think it'll fit in a toaster revolution. oven, but if you have just a normal toaster, you can use this. And it, 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 when it comes out, when it's done, it has the look of something that has been grilled Ooh. outdoors because it, the it has oh, the sure. grill marks and they're right. different colors and it's a, a grilled cheese sandwich. You know? I liked it. Yes. They sell... I said, what are you doing selling these panini presses because they fit in any toaster? And I thought that would go against the fact that they have the Revolution Toaster. But no, what they said is they're selling more panini presses than they are toasters. And so it's, it's good. They're making money on that. Go and Carol one. had a, a grilled cheese sandwich later in the day. And, you know, doesn't eat a lot of grilled cheese sandwiches, so that was good. Although Carol's position was, and this is an interesting thing. Carol's position was the familiarity 
of a grilled cheese sandwich that you make in a skillet. Sure. Where you butter the outside. Mayonnaise. Or mayonnaise. Or mayonnaise yeah, the outside. Yes. And spread a mayonnaise. Yep. Luke, yeah. you're, you're new to this, so we'll ask you, would you make a grilled cheese sandwich in a toaster, or would you be more comfortable making your grilled cheese sandwich in the skillet? I got to go skillet. I remember my uh, late grandmother, Italian woman, Helena Parati Orth, used to do it in the skillet. And it was fantastic. There's the smell of it. It's cast iron. You you have all the old oil in yeah, there. It hasn't been cleaned in it hasn't decades. Hasn't been cleaned in decades. It just has a good, nice fit to it. So I'm a, I'm a skillet person. And I, honestly, I'm I'm such a curmudgeon when it comes to all these new food trends. You know, there's pellet grills. There's air fryers. Like, I don't know how any of that works. I got the skillet. And my natural gas don't come from my stove. I'm joking, everybody. But yes, that's what I do. I, but I, I'm a simple caveman. Flame, plate, there we are. Now, do you, do you weigh down your grilled cheese? Do you have like a brick you use? So I have in the past used the bacon press yep. to put on top of the bread with the grilled cheese. Uh, but I'm to me, the grilled cheese, like I couldn't eat one in late May. It has to be in the winter, and it has to be accompanied by the tomato soup. Sure. Oh, you have to have yes. soup. So it's seasonal yeah. for me. Like yes. I, can't, I won't eat one between now, probably but not till October. Would you, you wouldn't, you wouldn't freshen it up with like a nice slice of a heirloom would, tomato? Would you, you put tomato? Would you put bacon on it? Oh, I think so. I think you have to have something that gears it towards the summer, spring, summer season. But just straight up grilled cheese, not we're out of season for that right but now. But you like a grilled cheese sandwich? Oh, I do. Oh, yes, yes. because I'm very it's pro comforting. Cheese. It's oh, yeah. familial, right? Grilled it, cheese. It's fantastic, and uh, you know, you meet people. I don't eat dairy. I don't. And some people, obviously, have, they, they're lactose intolerant. They can't have it. But if you can eat cheese, you're not eating cheese. Get back on the cheese. The cheese is great. <laughs> it's fantastic. Speaking it's of perfect. lactose intolerant, it's the Peter Melman line. <laughs> Melman wrote me the other day. I I couldn't I couldn't run in the Indy 500 because I'm lactose intolerant. Because <laughs> <laughs> at the end, if you win, you, you get milk. milk. Yeah. You have to drink the milk. That was very funny. Yeah. I felt that was very funny okay i just wanted to say that about the panini press uh, my only... michael where are you on grilled cheese because you've done so many different ways uh it's amazing to see the grilled cheese through the eyes of my kids it might be their favorite food uh yeah. and you give them a little side of bacon but uh no they it's the it's getting the family together it's putting it on the putting it on the skillet yourself but i remember as a kid before i really knew how to cook i would do the old what you're describing i'd put the two pieces of bread in a you know, in a toaster oven with no no butter, no fat in it or anything, and just squish them together because it was the most efficient way to get a sandwich. Yeah, it's grilled cheese. It's it's always has to be. I think it has to be yellow cheese, like she- not white cheese. I don't think that's. I'm sure it tastes fine. Bowl. What do you like? I you know I've I've I have switched to the white American, but a fresh slice white American from the deli for this. Have type you of sandwich. ever had a Monte Cristo sandwich? Yes. Have you ever had one? Where, who, who makes them? Okay, a Monte Cristo sandwich oh, is a grilled yeah. cheese sandwich <laughs> with ham and turkey. Oh, and oh, turkey. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. turkey. So I've done just the ham. It's, I've not done no, it's the turkey. A great, that's a it's great a sandwich. It's a great sandwich. Yeah. I, I had it do. for the first time a few weeks ago, and I said, where have I been? <laughs> wow. Why did I never have this before? Have you ever had a Cubano? No. That's yes. with that's, that's with the ham pork. That's, yes. yeah, that's very that's good. That's the same thing, yeah. right? With pork. Great old, you got I, the I've had that, there. but they also have pickles. Yeah. yeah. They also put pickles on it. The Monte Cristo did not 
How are you on pickles on sandwiches? Love pickles. Big pickle guy. Extra pickles. Big extra pickle guy. You know, back in the day when I used to intern at PTI, I would get about two of those pot belly pickles to bring back to the newsroom. And often one of them would be given to Frankie Nation or somebody else. You're, that was the internship that was cut short because you had other agenda. <laughs> well, it was, it was a busy you know, summer. Tony, uh, John Kerry doesn't windsurf alone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. It was fantastic. Would, this decrepit pit in Chinatown, or being with it wasn't there. It's not there anymore. Now you know oh, where it is. Oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, it's on the it's the ABC News building. The sales, across street, across from. The although Asia. I did like that place. Although your car going missing a few times did not lend itself. Oh, remember well, that? Yes. I got my car stolen. <laughs> well, I but you always secure, got it back. It yes. was a secure building. I mean, it was it was the best. It was the ATS building? Years I got, later, I came back and there is a a guard that just sat outside your dressing room. I'm like, what is the purpose of this individual? And they go, so Tony's car doesn't get stolen. Safeguard the car. What yes. a great gig. All right. We will take a break. Uh, when we come back after a Dan Burns song, we will talk to Luke about Look For Me There, which is on bestseller lists all over the United States of America. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Being around sports media and a fan of, oh, my NC State Wolfpack for a lifetime has taught me that sometimes it's exploring the sliding doors moments and what if scenarios in sports that can be the best part of the fan experience. What if the Seahawks let Marshawn run on the one-yard line with the Super Bowl on the line? Or could a coin flip have landed Magic in Chicago, Michael in L.A., and made Charles Barkley the first black president? Enter Wondery's newest sports show, Alternate Routes, a weekly leap into the sports multiverse with former sports center anchors Trey Wingo and Kevin Frazier. Each week on the podcast, Trey and Kevin will probably open the sliding doors of a different what-if moment from the world of sports. In these alternate sports realities, dynasties will fall. Legacies will change forever. New goats will emerge. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Alternate Routes early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Pitch clock baseball is really in a groove. It makes the innings roll on. It keeps the rhythm smooth. I caught a game at Wrigley, the Cubbies and the Mets. An old-fashioned rivalry, good as you can get. I looked at my watch when the game was done. And to my surprise, it ended before it had begun. The game was over before it had begun. The game got going at 20 past 6. The Mets batted first, Chicago got last licks, and when the final fastball slammed the door, the scoreboard clock said quarter to four. The game took negative 235 to play, me and my buddies still had half a day, so we went to the Cubby Bear, drank beers out in the sun, the game was over. Before it had begun Pitch clock baseball Is really lots of fun The game was over Before it had begun Brilliant Dan Brown Totally brilliant <laughs> Totally amazing. brilliant Thanks Dan I was working yesterday So I couldn't go over there But it's lovely uh, Alright Luke's book Look for me there Has been As high as number three or it's high as number one on bestseller lists. High as number three combined with uh, the Audible and the ebook, and then hardcover got up to number four. But 
the Irish story that I will tell forever is we ran out of books, so we'll never really know if we could have been You didn't print up. enough books? They didn't print enough books. Did the you, demand was so big, we ran out of books. Did you do the audio yourself? I did, yes. What, did, they, did they want you to... Sometimes they want an actor to do it, but did you say, I want to do it? How long did that take? It took a long time. They approached me, actually, and they said, Would you, we, we prefer the author to do it. I mean, there are some authors who can't speak publicly, and you right. obviously don't want them to do it. Right. But they said, oh, you have a TV background, blah, blah, blah. You should go do it. It's like tracking. I said, sure. And I went out, this great kid who went to St. Andrews, Conrad, he has a studio out right by the old Montgomery Mall. I actually went to the Montgomery Mall food court each day while I was taping for my my short respite. And it was about uh, three and a half days, but it was long. Like, we're talking 10, 12-hour days. And at some point, the muscle just gives out. Yeah. Because you keep trying and trying and trying. However, what I found was that I was significantly better, as one would expect, on day three. Even though I had been using the muscle for a while, the muscle memory had come back. Uh, but I was, I, I said, can I re-record the beginning? Because I sounded so much better at the end. It's like, no, let's say billable hour. <laughs> <laughs> it is banked. And when we will have uh, this wonderful production that Conrad did and, and helped it out. When did you decide to write a book? I decided to write a book in about 2018, the end of 2018. And I had gone and traveled the world. I had left NBC in 2016, and I had kept all these journals. And I was going through a, kind of a difficult time sort of figuring out, okay, what do I do with this incredible experience that I had? I went to over 67 countries, learned so much about the world, learned about myself. But that freedom that I had sought after NBC had become to be a little bit detrimental uh, that I was strangling myself with it. So I went back and I read the journals and I had all these primary source documents about a lived experience that I had gone through. And I said, you know what? There's some interesting stuff in here. There's, there's sort of two tracks. There's the wanderlust, obviously, of leaving your position that you were supposed to do or that you had wanted for so long and, and achieved a level of success but felt unfulfilled. But then there was this idea of I was looking for something, which ultimately was the acceptance of not going in the same direction as my father. And I was also trying to outrun something, and that was outrunning grief. And what I realized going through those journals was, okay, there's a story here. And there's one that has a lot of universal themes that a lot of people can relate to. So give it, go at it and see what you can do. Now, my writing process was unique because I wrote out all the journals, and that was about 300,000 words. So, yeah, so, so this is what I want to get to because yeah. every day I keep some notes about what happened that day. And I was a professional writer. And a journal is not right. A, a journal is shorthanded, and you, if you ever look back on it, you expect the particular memory to kick in. There'll be a code for it and you'll understand it, but it's not writing. When you then sit down to write, which is something I assume you had never done before, what was that like and what was the daily, when you commit to it, there has to be a daily discipline. You can't just do it and then get back to it in three weeks, can't. Correct, and I approached it like a job. I moved out to San Francisco and went to my late grandmother's apartment and I hold myself up. Um, I decided to go out there in the beginning of 2019. I had to leave the friendly confines of the Tony Kornheiser show. And I went there and I approached it Monday through Friday, minimum nine to five, and you have to do something. My mother's mentor, who she was very close with, he actually 
uh, dedicated Lonesome Dove to her was the late, great Larry McMurtry, one of the greatest American writers. Absolutely. And he was very kind to me, and he said a number of years ago, he goes, make sure that the bare minimum, you try to at least get 500 words out every day. If you get to 1,000, that's great. But if you have 500 good words in a day, then you've done something really special. I don't think people understand the, the, it's not the creative process because that goes on in your head. I don't think they understand the hard work it takes to write because I'm sure there were many days where you look back at something and said, this is garbage. I, I got to do it over. It's very difficult. And for me, having come from television, the last time I had really written at length was when I was a history major at Boston College. And so I realized, especially in the earlier writing, it does read like an analytical essay. And then as I started to go through the process and I became more comfortable, I started to get more emotional. And then I had the stream of consciousness in the journals, but you have to professionalize it a little bit. Uh, but I wrote out this manuscript because I wrote out every country, every journal that I had that ended up being over 300,000 words, which is much too long. That's like having war and peace, right? And it was once I did all that, I saw the through lines and what they were. And then I worked with an editor to get it down to 80,000. But that's, it, it, you know, start to finish, it's a four-year process. And why did it take so long? It's because I didn't know what I had. Secondly, I wanted to make sure that what I had was good. Third, when you are writing at that, at that level, and what I mean at that level is when you're trying to be deeply personal, you got to get it right. And it takes, it's take after take after take after take after take. And there's some things that you write that are awful and you go, I can't do it. There's other days where it's just flowing and you feel so good. And there's most of the days are what I call absolute just uh, plowing. You have to plow through. There, there is a method to this. I remember watching Truman Capote once on television who said when he was writing, it wasn't always writing. When he decided he was writing, he committed to a project to write. He was at his typewriter at 8 o'clock in the morning every single day. He would sit there till noon. If nothing happened, he would still sit there till noon because he didn't want to be lazy about it. And on a good day, he would get 500 words on a good day. What were your fears? As you sat down to write this thing, you must have had some fears about either public acceptance or your ability to do it. Oh, sure. I think it was uh, a really an exercise in self-awareness, number one, uh, my own limitations as a writer. I mean, we all talk about my father. Everyone remembers my dad and I miss my dad and I love my dad, but my mom is the best She's writer the in the writer. family. Oh, She's yeah. the writer. She wrote for the Vogue and Rolling Stone and Village Voice, special correspondent for Vanity Fair. She's written a book. So there is that pressure as well. I think for me, what was good is that once I got into a rhythm and I had sort of seen, all right, this is where you were in January of 19, and you wrote all the way through the summer of 2020. And the stuff that came in the summer of 2020 was pretty good, comparative to where I started. So I was able to chart the progress and read it in, in, in time, and that gave me some confidence. But I think the most terrifying aspect of it, especially in, in my book, which is very personal and, and goes into some deep, dark places. There's a lot of highs and lows and peaks and valleys. But when you put that into a proposal and then you have to bring in publishers and other people and they might not understand what you're trying to say, that is the most nerve-wracking part. 
for me at least. It so was. your mom, whose professional name is Maureen Orth, and is a very, very well-known and accomplished writer, were you afraid to show it to your mom? Yeah. I, I would have assumed I mean, that that would mom, be a great fear. As I write in the book, my mom is... She is didn't never, look over your shoulder. She, no, no, not at all. She, I actually went out of my way to keep it... I, I didn't show it to her for over a year and a half. And actually, I would just send her bits and pieces. Because she, are, you, are you writing anything? Like, yes, mom, I am. Don't worry. I'm not just sitting out here in San Francisco, you know, chilling. Um, but one of the things about what's scary about that is, one, you're, you're being judged by a professional. Uh, secondly, a lot of stuff in the book was how our relationship had developed over the years. And that was something I didn't want to see until I got to more of a finished final product. Um, I think the most terrifying, though, aspect about it with mom is if you're going through and let's say she had started to look at it halfway and said, this is awful. <laughs> that would have been pretty difficult to keep going after that. So I was very much of the idea of you got to keep this in-house. And I didn't show it to many people at all, especially for the beginning. Did she edit it at all or did you have somebody else edit it? Did no, you present she, it to her finished? I presented it to her pretty down-the-line draft. I worked with another editor. It had to be, you, you can't do that type of writing with, your, with a, someone so close to it and someone who's a character and is so involved. Yeah. Uh, and when she said it was good, that meant a lot to me. So I think you should, uh, people know that you were on NBC as a very young man and somebody would say, oh, well, he got that job because he's famous. Oh, he, you know, that's how he got the, the job. The original Nepo baby, as someone called me. In one but of you were pockets. very good at it. <laughs> Thank you. You were very good at it. Yeah. And you left it. And you once told me, and I hope I have this correct. I said, why would you? I come from a different generation. Your parents' generation, my generation, when you get a good job, you do not leave that job. You, you mill it. You buy a house. You put your anchors in, you, you know, you grow into the dirt where your house is. And that's all of us. That's all of us. My children and you, you're all different. I understand that. But you left that job. And I think you once said to me, I was, it was like I was on the Bay Bridge. And I knew if I got to the other side, it wasn't going to be good for me down the road. I had to turn around. Do you remember any? sentiment like that and can you explain why you would leave that sure job? well let's start with what you just said because i come from a family of those irish civil servants so my grandfather was a garbage man for 40 years and a truck driver for 40 years he worked two jobs those jobs did not change he stayed there because it was stability exactly what you said and my father is very much the same way uh, he was an nbc from 1984 until the day he died he actually signed a 12-year contract at NBC, of course he would, which was crazy, <laughs> no. right? And but it, to him is like security. I like the job, security. I know where I'm going to be. Yep. I'm I'm happy. So I totally subscribed to that for a very long time. I think for me, I reached a point where I was turning 30. The light at the end of the tunnel seemed to get brighter because I lost my father at 58. I lost a good friend of mine at 27, and I didn't feel totally fulfilled. And I knew that if I reached the pinnacle, let's say, you know, Luke Russell is hosting the Today Show or Meet the Press or whatever it is, that it would feel good for a moment. But having played at that high level and been around the top of the top and seeing what it took, I knew that it wasn't all there for me, that that, that would not have made me happy. And it's scary to feel that way because you think, my goodness, I've put someone to blood, sweat and tears into this job. Um, and 
I, I, will, I admit, I did not toil in the local TV markets coming up. I had a huge opportunity and advantage, but I also had a huge target on my back. And I've talked about this with Michael. You know, when we grew up here, you said to Michael and my dad used to say to me that if your friends get caught drinking in the woods, nothing happens. If you get caught drinking in the woods, you're on the front page or you're at least the metro section, right? And there is a difficulty of having to work through that. And that was my fuel for a long time, but eventually that burns out and you have to look at, all right, who am I? What do I want to do? And I have this chance encounter with House Speaker John Boehner, who I covered on Capitol Hill rather aggressively. And Boehner says to me, very matter of fact, what are you doing here? And I go, what do you mean, sir? You invited me into your office. And he goes, no, what are you doing here? He goes, Capitol Hill is a flat circle. Time is a flat circle here. You can be here 15, 20, 30, 40 years and never quite know who you are. You don't know who you are outside of this Washington bubble, this Washington scene. Go out and do something else. And all these feelings that I had in my head about turning 30 to light at the end of the tunnel, my friends getting married and mortgages and me not really being sure what I wanted to do, it was get out. Yeah, go go try something else. Just go travel. Just go clear your head. You've been on this hamster wheel for such a long time. And then as I write in the book, the job, the universe showed itself to me. What I mean by that is I had a story about veterans benefits on Capitol Hill and it got bumped for Donald Trump's reaction to the death of Harambe the gorilla. And that's when I knew that the game had changed. And perhaps if I was going to go, this was not the worst time in the world to make this decision. That's that's great. Um, the terrible, uh, and I did have a chat with your mom last night, actually, when I was walking the dog, I ran into her, but the terrible question that comes up for everybody is what's next? You don't want to think about that yet, do you? No, I mean, this has been, the, su- the success of this book is beyond anything I could ever imagine. Right. I was just happy to get it out there, and that was enough for me. And people said, well, why did you write it? I said, because if there was one kid out there who lost their dad who is going through something, and this helps them make, feel a little less lost, then I've done my job. And the response I've gotten from this, I mean, I've had people in their late 70s write me letters being like, I've been sitting with feelings about losing my parent for 50 years, and this book helped make that more clear for me. And it's really touching, and it is really rewarding. I like the storytelling space. Uh, Maybe I'll I'll build my own studio somewhere in in my home, and that would be nice uh, to broadcast out my stories, but I don't know. We'll we'll see. I'll get the studio space. I, I... I like storytelling in the sense of long form. And one of the things I learned about traveling the world was that everyone tries to portray things in black and white, but in fact, the world is very gray. It's a lot more nuanced. And I think I'd be valuable in that role, whether it's documentary or writing another book or podcasting. We'll see. Well, let's sell some books. Where are you appearing? You wrote it down. Okay, so yeah. look for me there. Uh, I'm on a little bit of a tour. And let me just say one thing about this book. You know, there is a strong, loyal little co- connection here. My good friend Jake Sherman of Punchbowl yes. News, he yes. had the book party. So he goes, you got to talk to my agent. And I've been very distrustful of agents my entire life. I'm more of a lawyer, billable hour guy. Billable hour better than percentage, as, as you know, Tony. He goes, now you have to call this guy up named David Larabelle. And the way in which a book proposal goes is you have to actively get the agent. Whereas it's in TV, the agents call you half the time, right? And this, you have to actively you know, push the agents. Be like, Would you take me? Would you have any interest? 
So here I am. I call this guy up. I put my heart and soul onto the phone call about here's all these emotions that I progress after my father passed away. Here's wanderlust and self-actualization and self-loathing and all these things. And he listens. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, man. I loved you on the Tony Kornheiser show. <laughs> I said, what? He was like, ah, David Larabelle here. I'm a little. We're all good. Uh, whatever you need. Whatever you need. That's great. And I was like, what about the emotions? What about the... He's like, no, you're a little. We're, we're all good. So that's how we came together. And I've had littles at most every stop I've had so far on the book tour. That's great. And they've been very nice. They asked me for my favorite Tony Kornheiser stories. And, you know, yeah. I sometimes go there. But I'm coming up, Phil. Uh, Philadelphia, Thursday, June 1st, 6.30 p.m. at Headhouse Books. That's, that's tomorrow. That's tomorrow. And then this Saturday, Middleburg, Virginia, at the Salamander Resort, 4 p.m. That's June 3rd. If you haven't been out to Middleburg, it's the best wine region in the East Coast. Gorgeous. Beautiful place to be, nice village. And then this Sunday, June 4th, the Barnes & Noble at Rockville, Maryland, at 3 p.m., that's Rockville, Maryland, also known as North Bethesda, Maryland these days. <laughs> this is a stone's throw from Woodmont. There's a lot of Woodmont uh, golfers who listen to this show. So after you go shoot 105, come on over <laughs> to the Barnes & Noble in Rockville this uh, Sunday, June 4, 3 p.m. Middleburg, Virginia, Saturday, June 3rd at 4 p.m. Tomorrow, Philadelphia, June 1st, 6.30 p.m. at Headhouse Books. Wonderful. Thank Good you so you. much. Good for you. We will take a break. Bob Ryan will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is sent to us by Gary Riggs in South Bend, Indiana, home of the lacrosse champions. Oh, yes, that's Notre right. Dame won the lacrosse. I think they beat Virginia, if I'm not mistaken. A fellow Little and I are co-producing live concerts in South Bend featuring independent artists similar to that which you feature on your show. I'd like to share with you the music of a band named Tall Tall Trees. Tall Tall Trees is the musical pseudonym of vocalist and multi-instrumentalist banjo player Mike Savino. Though occasionally joined by collaborators, Savino usually performs as a one-man psychedelic indie folk orchestra when playing his Tall Tall Trees. He's acknowledged as a pioneer in the world of experimental banjo music. That's not a world I'm familiar with, <laughs> experimental banjo music. But this is called um, The Wind She Whispers. Yes. Right? Yes, it's a great song. And it's amazing. Yes, it really is. It's totally amazing. Michael, if people like Mike Savino want to send us their original music, how do they do it? Send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonykornizershow.com. He plays in Bob Ryan, the quintessential American sports writer. And... Bob and I go back a long way, and we watched a lot of games together, and Bob knows basketball far better than I and far better than most, if not far better than all. That was an awful no-show 
at home in Game 7 by the Celtics. Can you recall anything worse than that? In the circumstance, no. They have lost seventh games at home. I've seen them uh, uh, for various reasons uh, to various teams, including once people forget to the Orlando Magic, led by Hidu Turkoglu. Hmm. But uh, that this was a, a, a shockingly dismal performance uh, by the group uh, on, on an important in an important game. And there's no question. And they start off missing the first 12 threes. Um, you know, it's not it's not very good, and they never got any better than that. So absolutely, this was a. This was a. Uh, I, I thought they were going to win the game. I mean, I really. Did. I, I did too. Thought, I thought they yeah, were going to make were... history. I mean, I bought into the mythology of Boston and coming back, but <clears> just <throat> the cold number at the end of the game in a game seven at home to get eighty-four points. It, it's 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 a terrible. It's a failure, is it not? Oh, it is. It's a it's a, it's a failure, and and uh, uh, no, no one no one came out of this looking good, and and and. Starting with the coach and starting, starting with uh, now Tatum. Uh, now that was an omen. The first, the literally. Now this is not hyper. This is the truth. You saw it. You know, yeah. on the very first possession of the game, Tatum got hurt. Now, uh, and he was clearly impaired the rest of the way. And I like the idea that that uh, we had a commentator who has been there, done that, and 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 had no uh, uh, bias involved. So Reggie Miller was able to explain to the world what it's like when that happens. And 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 he said, your mind. Is you're trying to play tricks, and 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 he knew. So it, it, it wasn't an excuse. It wasn't a reason that he played poorly. But that doesn't mean others can't, uh, you know, up? help out. Jalen Brown was Terrible. abominable. Terrible Eight turnovers is just. I mean, there's no. There's, you can't get around that. Eight turnovers and and uh, his 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 bad habits that uh, we were all on display. Uh, dribbling into traffic wildly and and losing the basketball. Anyway. Um, it, it, it was a shockingly bad for the, the Jalen Brown thing. I mean, he's the second best player on the team. First best player gets hurt, can't give you 100%. Second best player has to step up. Eight turnovers and eight for 23 shooting. Now, he did say after the game, I was terrible. I was a failure. But he's eligible for some unbelievable mm. contract, like $275 million. Mm. Are they going to give it to him? Well, that's, that's, that was a question, of course, before – when uh, the series started, with, 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 with that once this is over, what's going to happen with Jalen Brown? He's got another year. He's eligible because, and here's the reason he's eligible. He's eligible for the max contract because the way the system works now, he made second team all league. Therefore, it makes him eligible. What kind of nonsense is that? If I were a writer still voting, I'm not anymore. I mean, I, I, uh, I, I would be outraged to think that, that uh, we, we're responsible for, you know, somehow part of the process uh, by voting or not voting for somebody in that circumstance. Anyway, he is eligible for the max, as, of course, uh, Tatum. So, uh, so they're going to have, well, they have two guys, uh, you know, with the max, uh, they're gonna, there's important decisions to be made about the roster composition, obviously, with this team. Nine for 42 from three. That's 21%. Was that their worst shooting of the year from three? Well, there was, there was seven for 35 the game before, so do the math on the two. Uh, they, they, no, they, they, they had become I, I, three-point dependent. The coach has made it clear that he, that's the way he wanted to go all season long, and, uh, and, and it, it finally caught up with them. I mean, you live by the three, die by the three circumstance. And uh, uh, it, that, that's what they did. And so, it, and Horford lost his touch. And we had a fun, uh, yeah, it, there was a whole thing earlier in the, in the playoffs that 
jokingly about uh, what he he was whether or not he was an elite three point shooter, and he declared himself to be an elite three point shooter, and of course he was a, an abysmal three point <laughs> shooter for most of the tournament. I, I call it tournament, and uh, uh, on and on and on it went. Uh, now here's the other thing: they have two guys on the roster whose raison d'être. And for them actually being employed in the National Basketball Association or shooting three-point shots, uh, one is Peyton Pritchard and the other is Sam Hauser. And and he just he, he Joe Mazzola didn't he had an opportunity, particularly with Hauser, who's six eight, uh, and you know give him a shot, but it didn't do it. And so there's no other reason to have Sam Hauser on your roster if he's not going to be on there, out there shooting threes. So let me get to the coach, the second year in a row a first-year coach of the Boston Celtics, was in position to get to the finals. Ime Udoka got to the finals last year, and then everybody understands that he committed acts while the coach of the team that were intolerable in an organization, and he was shown the door, and they put in Missoula, who had never coached anywhere other than a D2 level for, I think, one year as a head coach. It is said, it is written, that Missoula is a favorite of Brad Stevens. I don't, you know better than I, I don't know anything about it, but all the coaches there, all of Udoka's staff was passed over for this particular person also on the staff. How much is the blame for him? What is his future? He will get a disproportionate amount of the blame, uh, for sure. We, you knew this was going to happen if, if it ended without them winning the championship. Uh, he'll, but it, it, And he has to accept some of it. Uh, I mentioned his, his uh, three-point obsession, which is what it is, uh, his inexperience, his refusal to call times out for, uh, until, and, and act in any kind of a conventional coaching manner until very late in the game uh, uh, during the season. Uh, he didn't call a single timeout and, and some extraordinary moments or bad moments of this, this postseason. Uh, and, and finally he got around to doing so. Um, we don't know how it goes down behind closed doors. You know, we just don't know. Uh, people assume that they need a tougher, that Emi would have been able to be tougher, quote-unquote, on them uh, had, had he still been here. Uh, I don't know. I, I know that, um, you know, you're right. I, I, I'm Given I'm cutting him some slack personally simply because I trust Brad Stevens. Mm-hmm. He's, that was his choice. Uh, a lot, most people that know things, or that know the team and know the circumstance better than I uh, do at the moment, uh, were surprised and, 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 and mystified that the, the choice wasn't Damon Stoudemire. Uh, he would have been the most logical person, I think, if you had polled all the media and, and people that are closer to it, who's, who would, if, if in case something happened to Adoka, who would be the next coach, they would have said Stoudemire. And much has been made of the fact that Joe Missoula and, and the way the NBA hierarchy works sat in the second, second row, row of coaching last year <laughs> rather than the first row. You're scratching your head. Why him? So, and then, well, the, the one reason you him apparently is that uh, the very first person who came out and offered a public endorsement of him was Jason Tatum. Uh, he clearly uh, is a big Joe Missoula guy. So that helps. And I remember thinking of that back in, in, in the fall. Uh, well, if the best player is, you know, is sticking up for him that way, that's a good thing. Uh, well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Uh, but it, it's a question. It's an open question. Uh, I foresee him coming back, however. I don't see Brad bailing on him because uh, it wasn't all his fault. I mean, you know, and, and, and fault, if you want to say there's a fault here. Uh, you know, the players still ultimately have to play. And, 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 and when they mattered, you know, they dug a hole for 0-3. And, uh, and then in the game seven, uh, they, they laid another, brought the service egg. 
Yeah, I mean, I bought into the mythology totally. I bought into the Yankees and the Red Sox. I bought into the Falcons and the Patriots. I, I, I not only thought they were going to win, I thought they were going to crush Miami. How about you? Uh, I thought they would win, and I thought they would play well. And, and my, point, my reasoning was this, that, that uh, there was no fundamental reason why basketball should be uh, uh, exempt from this. Right. Uh, 03. Baseball, you got pitching. Hockey, you got goaltender. Okay, basketball, well, it turned out there isn't. An, and the way the game has evolved, Tony, uh, there is a fundamental reason. I was wrong. The fundamental reason is three-point shooting. If you're going to make yourself utterly dependent on it, then, yes, you could have bad shooting days, and that's the end of that. Now, you can offset. Now, and now, let, think back, though. In game uh, six, uh, they shot seven for 35, and they still won. They won. Uh, and and uh, they did play better defense, and of course they had a miracle play at the end, one of those things you can't account for, uh, you know, and no one could foresee the, the game ending like that. So And they managed to save themselves and buy one more day uh, thanks to a heads-up play by Derek White. Okay, fine. But uh, they did win the game, despite shooting poorly on the three. But, but their de- let's talk about defense for a second. Uh, their defensive effort on Game 7 was abysmal. Uh, Miami did whatever it wanted to do. Uh, whatever they wanted to do, they did. If they wanted to go to the basket, let's go to the basket. If we want to get an open three, we get an open three. Uh, their defense was terrible. And, and uh, so they could have overcome that shooting uh, theoretically if they had even played a, a, a B, B game of defense, but they came up with a you know, D game of defense. Yeah, I was just, I was, I was amazed. You win three in a row, and you have the momentum of a miracle ending in game six on the road. You, you, you think that, car- right? You think that carries over. You think yep. that carries over, didn't you? You think, but now, how many times are we going to learn in sports that the, the biggest myth in sports, in my opinion, I've learned this after, is, is momentum. And, you know, and, you know it's, a, it's a myth. It, it, it's, a, it's a journalistic uh, uh, fallacy. Uh, it's a talk show fallacy. It's a sports talking head fallacy. Uh, it, you know, you've got to go out and do it again. That's it. There's no such thing as momentum. I mean, we, we like to think there is, but there isn't. Uh, you, know, you know the famous baseball s- s- saying, oh, yeah, momentum is the starting pitcher, today's starting pitcher. You know? yeah. Well, it just isn't. I've seen too many examples. I, I, I cited one reason why Game 7 could be a, a, a problem for the Celtics, because we lived it in, 19, in 1982. Uh, the Celtics, for the second year in a row, were coming back from a 3-1 deficit to Philly. They had pulled it off the year before. Game 6 in Philadelphia, the Celtics beat them 88-75. to 75 at home. And we all mocked them, called them the 75ers. <laughs> and, and there wasn't anybody who thought, in Boston who thought the Southerners could lose Game 7 at home after what they had, you know, how they humiliated Philly. Well, guess what? Final score, Philly 120, Boston 106. And, and Andrew Tony went off for 30 again, and Dr. J had a big game, and, 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 and they won that seventh game in Boston. So I did reference that to people. It can happen, folks. Uh, you know, and uh, sure enough, it did. It did. Thank you, Bobby, as always. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me, Tone. Bye-bye. Bob Ryan, you know, I love when he says it's a sports writer fallacy. It's a talk show fallacy. It's a talking head fallacy. Momentum. All right, we'll take a break. Uh, Email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. I'm here to tell you about Bowling Branch Sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. They're made from the rarest organic cotton and designed to get even softer over time. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus 15% off your first order with code ODYSSEY. So head to B-O-L-L and branch.com today. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Here comes Tony's mailbag. Gonna read some faxes and your nerves. Here comes Tony's mailbag. Gonna read some for all you folks. Gonna read some for all of Tom Moss. Who's a little bit better as a painter than he is Great painter. as a singer. I think Chessie heard that. And, and company, Dan Byrne. Yes, accompanied by Dan Byrne. That's, that's the immortal. Great. Do you want to do the Bethesda Bagel then? Yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. How many bagels do you think Luke is going to go home with today on the way out the door? I'm hoping at least four. No, he's still on his, he's still on his book tour diet. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah, book tour diet. Yeah, got to look slim. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right, um, I guess that does it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, so put me on a highway and show me a sign and take it to the limit one more time. You can spend all your time making money. You can spend all your love making time. If it all fell to pieces tomorrow, would you still be mine? You thought it was you can spend all your time making love. Yes. No, it's, no I, I found that. These are the Eagles. This is a song, Randy Meissner. Yes. This is Randy Meissner's song, and if you've seen the Eagles documentary 15 <laughs> times, of course, like I have, <laughs> at this point in the, in the documentary, Glenn Fry goes crazy. He wants to punch Randy Miser in the face. Starts cursing at him because Miser, they want to end with this song. Right, he's and like, Miser says, I don't have it tonight. Yeah, my voice, my voice doesn't work. And, you, and, and, and Glenn Fry gets this look. You What? You're a singer. We're a band. What do you mean you don't have it? And he wants to punch him yes. in the face. Full gangster. And that was the end of Randy Meister. Yes. Welcome, with the Eagles. Welcome back, Timothy, or welcome, Timothy B. Schmidt. It's like that's $100 million yeah. gone away. Yes. Thanks to our guest today, Bob Ryan, Luke Russert. Don't forget, you can get Luke's book, Look For Me There, anywhere they sell books, places that you can steal it. Okay. <laughs> Thanks today to the sponsors, Etsy, Harry's Razors. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. Get the show through Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review. Steve the Sycophant wants a plug. Uh, the fourth annual National Community Band Festival this weekend at George Mason University Center for the Arts. Hosted by the Fairfax Wind Symphony, the musical extravaganza has seven local bands playing over June 3rd and June 4th. And for the finale on Sunday, the Fairfax Wind Symphony, directed by maestro Stan Schoonover, will include not only me, but also fellow little Charlie Burtz in the trumpet section. How about that? I didn't know that. We as love we Charlie. tear into such epics as Sousa's March, Bullets and Bayonets, and Mr. Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. You know, roll over Beethoven, <laughs> tell Tchaikovsky the news. For more information, just hit 2023-2023 National Community Band Festival on the Google machine. That's Steve the Sycophant, which is nice. And there's food at the reception afterwards. From John in Richmond. I wish I had something clever to share, or at least a one-in-a-million story. I just wanted to say thank you for the hours of carefree and genuine entertainment. In a crazy world, your podcast is refreshing and mentally relieving for a few hours a week. Isn't that nice? It's very lovely. From thank John, you. John, that's very thank nice. Thank you for that, okay. John. Dylan Lord in Lubeck, Maine. Luke, you've been to a million places. Have you ever been to Lubeck, Maine? I actually have. Really? Yeah. What do you remember about it? Not much. Uh, <laughs> but I was there. Really? In 2016, yes, I was there. Is it? Is it on the coast? Where is it? I'd it? have to look at the map, but I do remember driving through it uh, when I started out. Do you know and Dylan Lord? St- I don't know Dylan. Dylan Lord, Lubeck, Maine. Tony, do you think you could pass my number on to Chuck and Roxy? I couldn't think of anyone else to ask. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sure. Yes. Um, okay, from Sarah Beth Holder. I'm currently traveling without the man to whom I'm related by marriage and our masculine children. 
This is giving me a chance to catch up on the podcast, and I heard a recent letter from Kenny Smith in Kuala Lumpur. So I thought I would send you an email from Ikalut, I-Q-A-L-U-I-T, Ikalut Nunavut, which is on Baffin Island in Canada. And when she wrote this, this is in February, I'm just getting to it. It's currently minus 22 Fahrenheit, though it feels like (laughs) minus 51 with the wind, which is brutally cold, yes. On my walks to get a bagel breakfast sandwich and coffee in the morning, I spend the last 100 yards wondering if I'll get frostbite on my cheeks, the only exposed part of my body. So far, I've been lucky. When you go back on that paragraph, you go, what? Wait, you're, you're in an island that nobody has ever heard of? And you go get a breakfast bagel sandwich and coffee in the morning? Are you telling me that Moe's coffee and bagel exists in this place? That's the first thing I take away, right? They got to build a breakfast crowd. Wow. I'm here- Maine, Eastport. That's how I remember it. It's near Eastport, the most eastern part of the United States. Oh. And I drove right up there. Okay, that's there good. It is. Mm-hmm. I'm doing promotion work for my children's book, Benny the Bananasaurus Rex, which you would probably hate given the abundance of bananas, and I'm doing writing workshops with high school classes. Yesterday, I had a class full of students who showed a great disinterest in their English class. Looking to motivate them, I asked them what they were interested in. Sports was their answer. I asked them if they knew who Tony Kornheiser was, and they looked at me, an overly enthusiastic middle-aged woman with new interest. We talked about your career as a sports writer, and that got the ball rolling. So we were able to do the workshop, writing centered entirely around basketball, hockey, and golf. Thanks to the whole team for producing such a great show. Sarah Beth from Toronto, but currently, and it's pronounced... Ikaluit. Ikaluit. You're probably saying it wrong, but it's okay. So I guess it's bigger than I think. This is Baffin Island, if you can make that out. Yeah. And I don't know whether this large mass up there is Antarctica, but I think it is. <laughs> it's wow. fairly From John, John Albrighton, formerly of Pittsburgh, currently living in Willamette, not Willamette, damn it, Illinois. On Wednesday's show, you read an email, this is a while ago, from Aussie Steve Arnold, currently living in Prescott, Arizona. Much like... Lake Orion versus Lake Orion, Michigan, and Versailles versus Versailles, Ohio, or the other way around, Versailles versus Versailles, Ohio. Prescott, Arizona is actually pronounced Prescott. I know this as I recently spent a few days visiting my son who lives in Prescott. Trust me, the locals will correct you if you pronounce the name incorrectly. Isn't that nice? Okay, this is good. Brett Hobbs from Linton, Indiana. After hearing that you once owned a Ford Pinto, I then had a little connective tissue moment. My first car was a 1964 Chevy Impala Supersport. She was a beauty. 327 horsepower, stick shift, air shocks, dual hush thrush mufflers, Craigar wheels, and as the Beach Boys said, it purred like a kitten when the lake's pipes roared. <laughs> when I enlisted in the Navy, I turned the car over to my father for safekeeping. The Navy sent me to Japan for a year and a half to make sure I did my part in the Cold War. When I shipped back into the States, I arrived home and found my love and joy had been replaced by a Mercury Bobcat, the ugly sister of the Ford Pinto. I asked my father, where is my car? And all I got was, that's a long story, son. <laughs> After much investigating on my own, I figured, finally figured out that my father took my car out and got it into triple-digit miles per hour a few times. The final time he exercised his teenage speed fix, the engine blew. I was then forced to drive the Bobcat, that marvelous piece of engineering for the rest of my enlistment, while stationed at Fort Meade, Maryland. I'm happy to report the, only, the engine only caught fire twice when I owned it. <laughs> Uh, from Gibbs Johnson, checking in from South Africa, Cape Town this time. It was Johannesburg the last time, about 10 years ago. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't remember that. <laughs> should have. I had my own connective tissue experience when you read the email from Wynne Mossman but I'm, um, about his one in a million experience as a missionary in Kyoto. 
Kyoto in Japan. I grew up in Pullman, Washington, just across the border from Moscow. That's in Idaho, and no win from church functions as we are the same age. Somehow Wynn, myself, and Trent Rasmussen, another guy from the church, is also the same age and lived in Pullman, all ended up serving as missionaries at the same time in the same mission in the Kobe, Kyoto area of Japan. It's not really supposed to happen. The kids who grew up together end up halfway around uh, the world working together. So I remember thinking at the time, it was a pretty amazing coincidence, but God works in mysterious ways. Maybe Wynn had shared that story before with Trent, but it was the first time I had heard it. I'm wondering who the woman was, as there weren't that many independent clothing stores in the area. Anyway, pleased to hear that Wynn is a little. Also, that he's carrying on the family business in Moscow. His father, Roy, was a pillar of the legal community in Idaho for many years, and rural communities depend on kids who grow up there and choose to stay or come back and make it their home. Very much not like me, who also became a lawyer for the express purpose of getting away and have lived and worked as an expat for most of my adult life. The Google machine tells me the trend is now a medical doctor working in Utah. No idea if he's also a little, but I'm sure he'll let you know if he is. That's so we. It's so weird. I'll do one more. Seth Shainer, having uh, hearing some of your one in a million stories reminded me of a time that can't quite compete with an Idahoan meeting a friend of his mom's in Japan. But the domino effect of coincidences is my story, and that is the cause for telling. In 2017, in about five degree weather, the woman I'm related to by marriage and our two masculine children moved to our new home. Months later, we began a trip to South Florida, but because of the distance of the trip. And the fact that we had two young boys, we wanted to break up the trip into two days. So we planned to stay with my aunt in Bluffton, South Carolina. For not, not Okitsi, as we recently got, <laughs> but Bluff, Bluffton, South Carolina. Right. If you go south from the Columbus, Ohio area to Bluffton, you will end up on I-77, whereupon it makes the most sense to stop in Whiteville, Virginia, for lunch and gas. The best gas prices are in Whiteville. Seated in a Wendy's dining room, I was about to refill my cup before we headed back on the road when I saw a family come inside. The thing that caught my eye was the woman in the group was wearing a Gahana t-shirt. Gahana is where my then kindergarten age son attended school. As I prepared to refill my cup, the man of the group was just in front of me, and I had to say something. You from Gahana, I asked? Yeah, he said, wondering how I knew. I pointed at his wife. That's sure shirt. Where do you kids go to school? High Point Elementary said, really, my boys will go there too. What neighborhood? Harrison Pond, he said, us too. Which part? He then explained the cross streets they live near, and I said, we are right there. He asked where I was, and I told him, when I told him, he said, you could throw a football and hit my house. You bought the veterinarian's house? He's our vet. As I went to take my leave, I asked him where they were headed, and he said, Hilton Head, but we're staying in Bluffton tonight. And that's how I met our neighbors from around the corner. That's like... Really? Yes. It's just so. These things are so weird, and I also like, also like when we get them. If you're out on your bike tonight, as always, do wear white. Who is Tony? Tony Kornheiser. Who is that? It's a PTI guy on ESPN. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Pitch clock baseball is really in a groove. It makes the innings roll on. It keeps the rhythm smooth. I caught a game at Wrigley, the Cubbies and the Mets. An old-fashioned rivalry, good as you can get. I looked at my watch when the game was done. And to my surprise, it ended before it had begun. The game was over before it had begun. The game got going at 20 past 6. The Mets batted first, Chicago got last licks, and when the final fastball 
slam the door. The scoreboard clock said quarter to four. The game took negative 235 to play. Me and my buddies still had half a day. So we went to the Cubby Bear, drank beers out in the sun. The game was over before it had begun. Pitch clock baseball really lots of fun. The game was over before it had begun.
I will try, I will try, I will try.